All right, folks, we're going to get started. I don't want to be here any more than you do, so let's get this, uh, let's get this over with. Let me, uh, let me say good evening and welcome to Socrates in the City, the thinking person's alternative to wife swap. It, isn't it, though? Um, I have to say I'm absolutely amazed and stunned and a little fearful of the crowd uh, this evening. We've never had quite this many people. We are over 300. Yes, we are over 300 this evening. And I think you should give yourselves... That's right. Fire code for this room is 220, so... Um, but no, the, 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 this crowd is really overwhelming. And I just want to be upfront. Are you sure you have the right event? Please, please check on that because it's going to... It's going to get creepy and very religious and odd, and you might become uncomfortable. I just want to be upfront with you. Um, I, uh, I want to welcome the uh, students of the King's College, most of whom are very graciously sitting in the back. Uh, if you're from King's, wait, wait, wave to me, I just want to say. I, I'm a, thank you for coming. I'm a friend of the King's College, and anyone who knows the King's College is a friend of King's College, and we, we just want to welcome you. Um, a word on Socrates in the city, what it is. For those of you who are new, and it, actually, if you've never been to a Socrates in the City event before, would you raise your hand? Wow, that's very impressive. Um, you know, I, I, uh, that makes me a little uncomfortable because I'll be honest with you, we, we do some things here which uh, if you haven't been prepped for, you, you're going to get a little freaked out. I hope a friend, a friend or whoever brought you, kind of gave you a heads up on some of the stuff that's going to go down. Uh, um, I, don't, I don't know what to say at this point. In about 10 minutes uh, from that door, we're going to release a, uh, a greased pig through the, <laughs> through the crowd. And whoever, whoever catches the pig, it's a free Oz Guinness book and CD. Uh, you know, I admit it's a, it's a bit rural uh, for New York. Um, but it's a great crowd pleaser here at Socrates in the City, and we do it every time. It's just something that we do. And if you're new, uh, just try to catch the pig and, uh, and win a free CD and a book. That's, that's really all that's, there's to it. Uh, um, his name is, is Little Scotty, and he's a wonderful little pig. Um, no, it's, uh, seriously, Socrates in the City, of course, is a speaker series, and the subtitle, uh, which we haven't been using as frequently lately, but the subtitle is Conversations on the Examined Life. Uh, Socrates, the philosopher, of course, famously said that the unexamined life is not worth living. And some uh, of us thought that perhaps New Yorkers uh, could use a little bit more uh, intellectual stimulation and nourishment with great minds and great speakers like Oz Guinness talking on the big and controversial uh, questions of human life, meaning all those uh, things that you don't talk about at a dinner party in Manhattan. We, we don't have dinner, but we do talk about those things here. Um, so we, we hope to spark a conversation that goes, uh, th that is about those big questions that goes on beyond the boundaries of this room and beyond uh, the boundaries of this evening, something that you'll take with you into the rest um, of your life, thereby making it all the more worth the living, to paraphrase Socrates. Um, okay, so now some of you on the way in, I think about 92 of you asked me about the cast uh, on my foot. Uh, you're wondering uh, how it got there and w what's going on. And frankly, I'm going to be honest with you on this. So, so am I. Um, I just assume it's, it's somebody's idea of a practical uh, joke. But, but I'd appreciate it if they let me in on it because it's, uh, 
it's very inconvenient and it's kind of getting weird now. It's, it's, been, uh, it's been two days. So whoever you are, please take this cast off. I know you're here. Please take this cast off my foot as soon as possible. No questions asked. I'm not even going to look to see who it is. Uh, I'm just assuming you're an orthopedic surgeon uh, with a weird sense of humor. But, but the jokes, listen to me, the joke has gone on far enough, please. You, you can't just do this kind of crazy thing and pretend no one's going to say anything. For, for goodness sake, you're the vice president. You have to tell the national media. You... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm getting a little carried away. I, I slipped into the next topic. I just slipped. I just, I just slipped. Uh, from, little, little Scotty was here during rehearsal, and I just, you know... Um, uh, yeah, I, I slipped into the vice presidential topic, and of, of course everybody's talking about Vice uh, President uh, Cheney's hunting accident. Uh, I really don't want to get into that tonight. I mean, Jay Leno and everybody else is, uh, is talking about it. The only thing I'm going to say about it is that if all of this attention uh, eventually forces Cheney to resign, which actually it could, you realize George Bush would become the next president. Um, so, thank you. You think about that on your way home. Um, uh, all right. No, but seriously, uh, let me tell you, I, I know that the cast on my foot wasn't put there by some anonymous uh, orthopedic surgeon. I, I really do want to explain to you what happened because it's almost funny. Um, I, I broke my foot uh, three days ago while exuberantly leaping over a vast pile of snow on 74th Street. Uh, we didn't really have it in the budget to go skiing this year, so I wanted to break my leg close to home. And so... Um, uh, so yes, I exuberantly leapt over this vast pile of snow. Evidently, the new meds are working a little too well. And uh, I, just, uh, I just leap everywhere I go. And I leapt over this vast pile of snow, and I didn't stick the landing the way you're supposed to, and I seem to have fractured a small bone, my fifth metatarsal. Turns out I actually have, have two uh, fifth metatarsals, one on, one on each foot for symmetry. And um, you... You laugh, but you, you should too if you don't, you know, tell your doctor because that's, uh, that's the way it should be. But the, the pile of snow over which I leapt or intended to leap um, was, was, was huge. You saw this the other days. This is three days ago, right? It, it was really mountainous. Uh, it's mostly melted now. But during its brief life, uh, it was huge and dangerous. And, and among the locals, it actually went by the name Brokefoot Mountain. That's true. That's true. Yeah, no, that's true. You can ask the locals, come up to 74th Street. Look, you ask them. You a come up there and you ask them. They're a salty old bunch up there on 74th Street. Um, okay. Uh, tonight we have my very dear friend and yours, Oz Guinness, with us. Oz will be speaking, as you already know, on the subject of globalization and its human challenges. As I think I mentioned in the emails, I've heard this talk before, so I'm going to be in the lobby having a cigarette. Um, <laughs> Now, of course, I'm kidding. I don't smoke. I'm going to check out the squash courts is what I'm going to do. Um, no, th this is the case. Whenever Oz speaks, I always want to hear his talk again and again. His talks bear listening to over and over. So I encourage you already now to, to buy um, CDs. Uh, his, his talks, I, I think I've, I've known Oz for a number of years. His talks are always worth hearing more than once uh, because they're so rich. Um, and his... Uh, Plummy British accent does not hurt, just in case you're... Uh, I mean, I, I can say that if I were to present Oz's talks word for word, uh, I think you would probably find the ideas behind it simplistic and even wrong-headed. <laughs> if, if, if I were to give his speech, I think you'd see large lapses in the logic. Um, 
surely you would find the hectoring tone off-putting. Um, but, but with Oz's plummy British accent, you simply won't detect a single one of those things. It's, it's extraordinary, really. You watch and see tonight. I defy you to detect any of these things tonight. And it's all because of the accent. It just it works every time. It's not right. Um, I think, seriously, we can say that if it weren't for Oz Guinness, Socrates in the City would not exist. Oz was our first seven or eight speakers. That's true. Um, uh, but, thank you. Um, but actually, more than that, Oz helped me come up with the idea for Socrates in the City. We were in the back of a friend's car on the way to Vermont, and that's all you need to know. But um, I remember it. I remember it well. And... Uh, who am I talking to? Um, but that's, that's quite true. So I thank Oz for, uh, with me, coming up with this, uh, what is now obviously an extraordinary idea. Um, in case you don't know much about Oz, let me tell you uh, that he's the author of many, many books, uh, all of which are worth reading and some of which we have here and which I recommend to you very highly. That's another reason we do this is to introduce you to wonderful minds and speakers like Oz Guinness, to encourage you on your own uh, to read their books. Oz uh, has one book here titled The Call, which I would say probably would be the best one to start with. I recommend it to you as strongly as I possibly can. Um, Oz is very, very rare, even a, even a unique voice in our culture as I see it. He seems to see things that others don't, and tonight I hope you'll observe what I'm talking about. Oz was born in China, where he witnessed the climax of the Chinese Revolution and its attendant horrors, and he was educated in England, and today he lives in the Washington, D.C. area. Since coming to the U.S., Oz has been a guest scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Center for International Studies and a guest scholar and visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution. From 1991 to last year, he was a senior fellow of the Trinity Forum, and he's the, he is a frequent speaker at political and business conferences both in the U.S. and Europe. He's lectured at many university uh, at many universities and has spoken at the White House, Capitol Hill, and other public policy arenas around Washington, D.C. Uh, now, our format tonight, and by the way, I just want to say again, there are, there are still plenty of seats over here. There's a couple of seats uh, here and a bunch of seats over there. There, there are seats, so wend your, wend your way through and we'll try not to look. Um, our for but we will. Our format tonight... Uh, as usual, we'll start with, with Oz's talk, which will be 35 or 40 minutes, uh, at the end of which we will have about 35 or so minutes for Q&A. Uh, that's always a fun part. I think we'll have a microphone set up there. You'll have to make your way uh, to the microphone. We promise to be done by 8.25 uh, or 8.30 at the very latest. That's our promise to you. So I'm very welcome now to welcome, I'm very happy now to welcome our dear friend, Oz Guinness, to the podium and Socrates. Thank you, Eric. Always almost impossible to take over after him. <laughs> I have the misfortune sometimes of speaking with a friend who comes from Philadelphia. And once when we were speaking, he said to the audience, this man from England, you have to listen to him for 20 minutes before he realized he's not saying anything. <laughs> Whereas with my Philadelphia accent, you have to listen for 20 minutes to realize I am saying something. <laughs> But actually, I've been here so long that the real English people in the audience probably think I'm American now. But I call it mid-Atlantic. 
Last time I came, someone came up and said, I bet you can't keep giving Churchill stories. Well, the good thing about Winston Churchill was he was so incredible that lots of stories got stuck to him that didn't actually happen. But at the end of the day, there's still a finite amount of stories, and I always like to tell stories that have some point, unlike Eric's. <laughs> but here's one I came across recently. It's a wonderful story of Churchill with Stalin. Roosevelt was rather ill and didn't attend the big meeting, and so it was just Churchill and Stalin and the interpreter. And they both loved their drink, Churchill, whiskey, Stalin, vodka, and they drank the night away and talked about all sorts of things. And when Churchill got back to the British Embassy in Moscow, he realized he wasn't quite as lucid as usual, so he dictated a memo of everything he could remember, but at nine the next morning, he sent the memo to Stalin and said, this is as best I can remember. How do you see what we said? Stalin sent a quick message back. He said, don't worry. There are only three of us in the room, you and me and the interpreter, and I have just shot the interpreter. <laughs> and he was serious. <laughs> One of the Churchill stories, which points out the importance of leadership. But it's always an enormous privilege to be here. <laughs> In a democracy, you have to persuade 300-odd million. In a, in a situation like theirs, you only had to persuade one, which is a little easier for Churchill. More seriously, though, I've often begun a lot of my recent thinking with a story which some of you have heard me use before of Bismarck in 1898. Talking to a friend, and the friend said to him, what would be the decisive factor in the 20th century. And Bismarck answered, it'll be the fact that Americans speak English. Now, I'm not going to challenge that tonight. In 1898, the British Empire was the largest, strongest force on earth. And in 20 years, it declined and faded. And the vacuum was filled not by the victor of a European conflict of powers, but by the United States. And the last century was the American century. But in the same spirit, what's decisive today? I'm moved by the fact that the three greatest questions all have a geopolitical dimension and a spiritual dimension, but there's something that links them. The first great question for our century, will Islam modernize peacefully? And the recent events underscore that challenge. The second great issue for our century, which faith will replace Marxism in China? The party is in power. The ideology is hollow. China is on a search for an ethic and a philosophy to replace Marxism and guide China as she emerges as a great superpower again. The third great issue for our times is, will the West sever or recover its roots? No great civilization endures if it cuts its roots. And we are towards the edge of doing just that. But of course, what accentuates these questions and links them is globalization. Now, as soon as you mention that word, you deal with something which has been called a buzzword, a witch word, and a password all at once. 
Globalization is a buzzword because many people use it and they never stop to think what they really mean. It's a witch word in the sense it's one of those words you use to throw light on everything else, but very rarely do people shine light back on itself. And it's obviously a password because it immediately splits people. I call them the gee whiz cheerleaders who want to promote globalization and the curmudgeons who are protesting it like the World Trade Organization protesters. Clearly, this is an issue that divides very, very deeply. But tonight, I want to give a view of globalization, which I hope is more comprehensive than many people's and at the same time more critical. Because if you look at those who do get into it, many of them, say, readers of Tom Friedman's The World is Flat, for them they have this blithely optimistic view of globalization which really looks at the winners and not at the losers. Those who are on the advanced end of it, not those who are on the losing end of it. And globalization is much broader than this and much more challenging than this. So in many ways I want to leave aside some of the obvious things about globalization, which Friedman does cover well, and to look at some of the much more challenging comprehensive issues, how it touches us all and the issues it's raising for the world. But of course we have to start, what actually is globalization? It is not market capitalism. It is actually rooted in communications. But when we deal with globalization, we all, and I certainly include myself, have to begin with great humility. The very term suggests that. The original word was universalization. And the idea was with reason and planning and design, human beings could universalize what they want and we would be in control. But the word globalization came to add another dimension. We had unleashed a force in the world which is affecting us and we are not in control. And the simple fact is, if you think about a force which is truly global and globalizing, we are talking about something which no human being comprehends and no human being and no government fully controls. Stands to reason, none of us can see the world from nowhere. That's impossible. None of us can see the world from everywhere. That's incoherent. We can all only always see the world from where we are as finite, limited people. Which means that our views of anything that's global are necessarily incomplete. And we all have to begin with a tremendous humility as we discuss this issue. And those who really explore it in greatest depth have a sense of a force that is beyond our comprehension, and beyond our control. But what actually is it? At its heart, it's rooted in communications. The speed, the scope, and the simultaneity of our communications have reached a stage, and this is how I define globalization. Globalization is the process whereby the speed, scope, and simultaneity of our communications allows us to conduct our human affairs anywhere in the world, regardless of place or time or government. So that for the first time in human history, to some very rudimentary and yet revolutionary degree, 
we are becoming the beginning of one world. Now, if you see it there rooted in communications, you can see that globalization is modernization mark two. Modernization mark one was the Industrial Revolution. And the heart of the Industrial Revolution was not communications, although there were some, but production. The extraordinary new capacity of the factories, for example, of producing on a scale that human beings had never done before in history. But it's said we've gone a long way from there, and the first stage was the combination of the steam engine and the telegraph, which gave us, say, the railways, an enormous leap forward in communications. The second stage beyond there was the linking of telephones and rockets, giving us, for example, satellites, and a huge leap forward in communications. And here we are today, very obviously, in the age of the microchip and the fiber optic cable with the World Wide Web. But if that's right, the heart of globalization is not market capitalism. That's just one of the forces which uses the communication. It is the communications itself which is at the very center of it and which is driving it in ways which are unprecedented. So everything in our world depends on the twin currencies of connectivity of information and mobility of people, both of which have reached unprecedented levels of advance. Now, when you look at the various things that then have taken advantage of this, obviously we're looking at global capitalism, at democracy, at uh, cultural products, and so on. I want to leave all those on one side because they're so well covered in much of the common discussion. But let me pick out some issues that are not so well covered on various levels. First of all, the three broad consequences of globalization for all of us in the global world. Now, of course, globalization is always a matter of more or less. So these things apply to those that are more modernized, more globalized, and less so to those who are further behind. But if you look at our world, globalization is a touching all of us, and certainly here in the United States, and certainly in Manhattan, at levels that many people are only just beginning to recognize. And the first rather obvious thing is that we're now in a world incessantly on the move. Now, the surface features of that are so obvious they hardly need saying. Connectivity, mobility. We are now in a world where distances hardly matter, where we've reached the end of geography, but not the end of history. That's a foolish idea. Where boundaries and walls no longer keep people in or keep people out. And old categories like close and far away are increasingly obsolete. Now, when you look at the world and the move, some of the facts are very, very obvious. Like it's a world, it's said, of tourists and vagabonds. Tourism being today the world's number one business and industry. But think at a far more deep level than that. Take the way that globalization and this world and the move is touching many things like our relationships. One of the best descriptions of globalization and its difference from the traditional world is the idea that we've shifted from a solid world to a liquid world. Now, you all know what a solid is. Take the, the podium. 
A solid is something, put simply, that holds its shape at rest. Whereas a liquid takes the shape of whatever it's in. It doesn't hold its shape. It flows or oozes or trickles. And it's said that the effect of globalization, the speed at which we move, the speed at which we communicate, is such that the traditional bonds and ties and glues that held together social relationships have been incredibly eroded. The obvious example is marriage. Fifty years ago, people said they swore to each other, till death do us part. It's for the duration. There was a lifetime bonding in the glue of the commitment. And then came serial monogamy. Until further notice. And then came living together many years ago. Let's see how this works out. And then came, and the latest European relationships are called semi-detached couples. People who are together when they want to be together, and they're not together when they don't want to be together. Because there are no ties, there's no bonding, there's no glue in the social linkages today. And so everything's not solid, it's liquid and fluid and very much with a shelf life that's limited and until further notice. And you can see the upside of that is people talking about the new freedom. No ties, no tears. And the great American ethic, move on, move on, move on. Any problem, just move on. And if you have no ties, then you'll have no tears, and so on. And you can see how globalization affects things like marriages and all sorts of relationships at a very, very profound level. And the downside of that, of course, is discontents and dysfunctions and loneliness and broken hearts and so on. The second grand consequence of globalization for those who are globalizing is that we're living in a world that's ever increasingly atomized. In other words, communities, societies, neighborhoods are eroding. Families are eroding, as we just said. And in their place, if this goes on to the extremes, you have more and more the focus on the isolated atom of the individual. Some of you may have read the French book by... Michel Welbeck, which is reckoned to be the sort of brave new world of our time, called Elementary Particles. It's the story of two half-brothers who are so isolated in their individualism, they only eventually have each other. But they search for this community, that commune, this movement or whatever, and eventually they all fail because the collective is more and more disappearing in its solidity. And they're cast back more and more onto themselves as individuals. And one is a scientist and rational intellectual. And it explores his dilemmas. The other is a hedonist and pleasure-seeking and so on. And it explores him. And to put it simply, the second brother ends up basically masturbating all day. And the only relationship he has is with himself. The book paints it in an extreme in his loneliness and so on. But you can see... Many people in our society are told, yes, we're in a world of individual freedom. And that's how it sold us. Instead of what's called the old world of ascription, 
where you're born in a family and you're a member of class and you have your agenda clear and all these things, we're in a world of achievement where life is no longer a given. It's a task and a project and any of us can be free to do what we like. And that's what we're told. And in this country, we have the fatuous saying, you can be anything you want to be, which is one of the most foolish ideas that are possible to, to think of. And the fact is the gap between what we're told we can be and what we find we can be because of who we are. When I was football playing age, actually I played rugby, but I would never have made a linebacker. And there's no way that I could aspire to be a linebacker or a defensive lineman. I'm getting more like that when I'm a little older, but I wasn't then. And the, you think for five minutes, we're told we can be anything you want to be, but the fact is we simply can't. And the gap between what we're told we can be and what we find we can be, that frustration gap is in America filled, and in much of the modern world, filled by shrinks and psychologists and 12 steps, this and recipes for this and self-help movement and that, all designed to fill the fact that people actually in their lonely freedom are not doing as well as they're really told they should be. The third great broad consequence of globalization is it's producing a world where differences are dug deeper. I am not a fundamentalist. I am a person of faith. Fundamentalism is a modern reaction to the modern world. It's a very modern reaction. And the fact is, if you look around the world at the elite level, globalization is bringing together people who were once apart and are now together. Take few weeks ago, Davos, and Klaus Schwab, and so on. The world's elite meeting at Davos. But at the bottom level of the world, those who were once distinctively different in their ways of life are suddenly now aware, through the media, through travel, of the impact of the modern world on their way of life and the impact of all those others with different ways of life on their way of life. And the effect is that the differences are dug deeper. And there's a militancy, a defiance about fundamentalism. So you have, say, Sokogaka in Japan, which is a Buddhist fundamentalism. You have the very dangerous Hindu nationalism in India, which is a Hindu fundamentalism. We have, fortunately, far less extreme forms of fundamentalism in this country, which are defiant and irrational. And, of course, supremely in the world, as we all know well, we have Muslim fundamentalism, which is so irrational and so dangerous. You can see across the world the rise of fundamentalisms as globalization makes people aware of all those others who are different from them and how the global world is really threatening their traditional way of life and they dig their hills in deeper. The second broad point. Globalization and three special challenges to the elites. I put this in because the elites have no problem. We hear about them. They're making unimaginable fortunes in the global era. But the fact is that even the elites have temptations and challenges raised by globalization. Let me just mention the three main ones. The first is and many of you in the room may be in this world, and of course there are many in Manhattan who are, or Washington, or Tokyo, London, Paris, and so on. The first is anyone who's in the global elites is tempted to live a life 
that loses reflectiveness. The reasons are very obvious. We're going too fast. We know too much. And we have far too much expectation of pressure on every second of our lives. We're going too fast. We have conquered geography. It's rightly said this is the end of geography. But the compression of time means that time has conquered us. And actually, every single labor-saving device has left human beings with less time than before and a world more hurried and harried than ever before. And our 24-7 living is like that. We're overloaded with information. I was reading a study of one man who Googled the word waste. And in less than three seconds, actually he used three search engines, he got more than 18 million references to waste. And as he said, what a waste. <laughs> Far more than a single human mind could digest or assess, let alone remember. Far more than a library could put in. Only one place can handle it, the World Wide Web. And much of it is a gold mine, truly. But much of it's also a garbage can of absolutely unusable information. And most of us simply have far too much information coming into our world, let alone giving us the chance to be wise. And any of us in the global world where we're moving so fast, we need to take special time out for reflection, to achieve wisdom and not just have knowledge and information. And in our, obviously we're in the world of the one-page summary and the one-minute this and the coach and the consultant and so on. All methods of trying to help people in leadership try to cope with this overload of too much information at too high a speed. And of course, there's the added pressure, not quite so obvious, of the expectancy. What do I mean? Well, back to marriage where you can see this clearly. If you say, until death to us part, and you're married 20, 30, 50, 70 years, obviously you don't have to be at your very best as a Romeo or whatever every second of those 50, 70 years because you have a framework in which you can have what's effectively downtime, and all of us <laughs> have it. We've just had St. Valentine's Day, but I bet all you men in the room who are the Romeos in the ultimate sense are not like that every single second of your year. None of us are. But the point is you don't have frameworks or bonds or ties. You only have the individual second of the present moment. Now apply that, say, to business. It was pointed out after Enron collapsed that it wasn't just unethical, it was incredibly unrealistic to work there. What was it, 20% of the workforce fired every year, and a third every year warned that they'd be fired the next year unless they performed. And yesterday's success was never enough. Many people said it was a relief and a pleasure to be fired by Enron. But you could see the pressure there is also the pressure in many people in dating and other things unrealistic expectations because if there are no boundaries and ties and bonds and so on, you have to be every single second that super successful whatever in a totally unrealistic way. But the net effect of the global elites is a very deep loss of reflectiveness. 
and we have many people who are rich in information and very poor in wisdom. The second great challenge to the elites is a loss of responsibility. Now, for honest, moral responsibility has always been wider than ethics, often linked to visibility. In other words, people were good or they weren't bad because they were seen. Plato discusses this. You have examples in the Bible. In other words, responsibility was close to accountability because of visibility. But in the modern world, we are more anonymous in more situations than any generation ever in human history. And the question is, what is our integrity and responsibility then? Now, this plays out in all sorts of ways. Most of them I'll ignore. Let me just mention one. You know the old story in the French and the Russian revolutions of the absentee landlords. They weren't always evil people, but they lived high on the hog in Paris or St. Petersburg, off the backs of the peasants back in rural France or rural Russia, and they never saw them. So they didn't give a damn for them. And the effect was injustice, oppression, evil, and they were absentee landlords, and part of the revolutionary anger was against them. We have today, it's said, a new breed of absentee landlords. And they are our major global capitalists, many of whom within a few hundred yards of here. Why? Every day, they're manipulating trillions of dollars of money. And for many of them, their only thought is the next quarter or their investors. They're told to do that. You have essays like Chainsaw Dunlap saying, the CEO, for example, should only think of the investor, never of the supplier, never of the workforce. The workforce is called to be flexible, never of the environment, and never of the outsource groups. And so you have the rise of absentee landlords, people making decisions which are touching the earth in Latin America or touching people groups in China. But they never think about them. They never see them. They narrow everything down to the financial decisions. And so there's a fundamental irresponsibility in their relationship between their financial decisions and the consequences of those decisions on the world. We are our brother's keeper. And any of us who have any influence, the ripples in any area, a journalist writing articles in the press or an investment banker making decisions that touch the other side of the world, we are our brother and our sister's keeper. And the temptation to the elites in our world is a deep loss of responsibility because people are making decisions and they're not aware of the effects of the decisions they make. The third challenge to the elites is a temptation to a loss of roots and realism. If you look at leadership in the global world, on the one hand, there's a dissolution of the old roots, and on the other hand, an inflation of the new reach and resources of leadership. What do I mean by the dissolution? Well, we've shifted from a world of the soul to a world of the ego. From a world of truth to a world of spin. From a world of the hero to a world of celebrity. From a world where neighborhoods and society matter to the world where 
things are at best networks and often just virtual networks and people have virtual relationships. So put all that together, you can see there's a deep erosion of roots and of the realism that's born of face-to-face relationships and local friendships and so on. And in its place, you have, thanks to the extraordinary grandeur of globalization, you have modern resources and modern reach, which are now global. So the result is what Carl Gustav Jung warned of some years ago, a giantism, that an individual person or an individual church or an individual corporation can have the most gigantic influence all around the world for better or for ill. And you can see that often you're getting inflated people who are lacking roots and lacking realism. Actually, you're approaching a situation very like the dream in the real book of Daniel, where Nebuchadnezzar was warned of the dangers of his own hubris. And if you remember the famous dream in the Hebrew book of Daniel, the head of the image he saw in the dream was of gold, symbolizing the power and the brilliance of human thinking and the imagination, which can truly span the vastness of space now. But of course, in the dream, the feet were feet of clay. And we're in a world where Lincoln's warnings of the danger of towering geniuses, at the moment, most of them are benign geniuses. Most of the monsters of the last century were pre-modern and didn't have the effects of globalization. But increasingly, as you see globalization touching things like illicit trade, you can see that the next step is to have people who are on the level of a Bill Gates or whatever, but who are far from benign and exceedingly malign. Imagine if Osama bin Laden truly had that reach. Or if, say, the evil gentleman Joshua, who leads the Lord's army in northern Uganda, had that sort of reach, what the effects would be. You can see that our world is creating the possibility of a leadership beyond roots, beyond realism, that leads to an inflated giantism, very dangerous for the people themselves, but extraordinarily dangerous for the world in the future. A third broad point. Globalization and its three major blind spots. I put this in. Remember, I'm picking on some of the sides that other people leave out. If you look at globalization, to many people today, globalization is their gospel. If you look, for instance, at secular philosophies, many of them ran into the ground after the 1960s because as they looked at the real world and they looked at their own philosophy, clearly the world was not going anywhere very optimistically. And there was a heavy swing towards a pessimistic humanism, for example. Globalizations changed that. The whole world can now be prosperous. The whole world can now be free. And you can see that for many people, globalization is their good news for humanity. But people who speak like that often overlook some of the blind spots of globalization. And any of us who are deeply human have to care not only for the winners, but the losers. And let me mention three of the blind spots to which we must never turn a blind eye. The first is that globalization creates extraordinary dislocations. 
dislocations. You can see this very clearly in modernization Mark I with the Industrial Revolution. Anyone who's read Dickens knows the story. Traditional ways of life were uprooted and dislocated and disrupted. As Max Weber put it, for the first time there was a separation between work and the family household. But in that gap that the separation created, huge exploding new cities, small today but big by those standards, London, Paris, New York, and so on, and then exploding new slums, and then a thousand evil oppressors in them, the Fagins and others of that world. Extraordinary dislocations. And even the greatest proponents, say, of market capitalism, like Peter Berger, admit that the first and second generation paid a very, very heavy price. Now, in globalization, which is modernization mark two, we are seeing it all over again. And any of you have been to Manila or Cairo or Mexico City, you know just some of the examples of this world being thrown up by globalization with, again, massive cities and horrendous slums and the opportunity for all sorts of forms of evil. The second blind spot is closer to globalization still, and that is the contradictions of globalization. In the West, we see market capitalism, say, and democracy going hand in hand. But as they hit many other parts of the world, they are unequal partners at best, often against each other. Take the Philippines. When democracy and capitalism introduced the Philippines after World War II, some of the communities there, the Chinese, for example, prospered unimaginably almost overnight. Why? Their values, the Chinese values, Chinese are brilliant entrepreneurs, natural business people. And overnight, they took to it like ducks to water and made unimaginable fortunes. Whereas the majority people, say the Filipinos, were left roughly where they were. And not surprising, the glaring inequalities created resentment, suspicion, hostility, and then violence and terrorism. There are huge contradictions as globalization reaches many people at the grassroots level. And it is simply not true that the rising tide is raising all boats. The third blind spot is the worst. What's called human waste or wasted humans. I don't mean industrial waste. That's a problem in itself, but not the major one. Think, though, when the early modern world came in and every order creates a disorder, creates a waste, when the early modern world came in, the unwanted of the modern world, which was mostly Europe in those days, was shipped across the world and there was lots of empty space in which to ship them. Who were the original Les Miserables? They weren't some wonderful group that got us this lovely musical. They were the unwanted of the French Revolution who were shipped out after 1848 and so on to places like Algeria and Nova Scotia. Who were the first British contributions to Australia? Got to say with shame as an Englishman, they were our convicts that we shipped over there to Sydney. And you could go on. But the point is, there was a tremendous toll then. Probably 30 to 50 million human beings 
in the continents to which the European unwanted were shipped were killed. But let's leave that on one side at the moment. We're now in a world where, as globalization happens today, there are no empty places to ship people. As it's put rather bluntly, there's a reduction of outlets and there's a reversal of flow from the other parts of the world. They want to get back to the Western world, whether it's people trying to get into California or Texas or people from North Africa or parts of Asia trying to get into Europe. And the net effect is human waste. 30 million human beings in our refugee camps. No state, no identity, no work, nothing but their bare, naked existence. And of course, under the safekeeping of the United Nations, in Srebrenica, they're massacred. Or in the Sudan, they're raped and abused. 30 million human beings today who are lived in what is called the archipelago of the nowherevilles. And there are fellow human beings too, human waste. And of course, that's just the beginning of what I want to go on to next. Three reasons why globalization is creating a perfect storm of contemporary evil. You can actually trace evil according to the rise of the modern world. So the first industrial revolution, early modernity, created the evils, you might say, the epitomized by the English workhouse, read Charles Dickens. Mid-modernity, in reaction to the early modernity, was characterized by the evil that epitomized by the German death camp. And the link between industrialization and Auschwitz is very clear. But we are now seeing an even greater evil in our time one of the greatest human rights crises of all time. And it's connected with globalization. There's a perfect storm because three factors are coming together. Globalization is expanding our freedom and mobility through technology. But the internet has led to a huge new dark side of crime and trafficking. Globalization is expanding the profit motive to being a worldwide thing, which has created illicit trade on a level the world has never seen before. And globalization is stoking consumer demands for things that are deviant and perverted because of the discontents and dysfunctions of globalization in the highly modern world. Now, many of us, as you hear things like, say, human trafficking, we think of these, sadly, as the Third World, or say, the former Russian Empire and Eastern Europe and so on. But the challenging fact is that while the supply is the Third World, the demand is the Western World. It's put very simply, it took 400 years for the evil of slavery to carry 12 million human beings from Africa to the Americas, 400 years. In the 1990s alone, 30 million women and children were bought and sold and abused from Asia alone. 
27 million human beings by UN statistics are held forcibly by criminal enterprises. Two to four million added to their number every year. 10 million child prostitutes under 10. 200 million children in forced labor. And as I said, the staggering scandal as it comes home to us is that while the supply is the pre-modern, the third world, the demand is here. Almost every single country in the world without exception is touched by some of this. But we have to say that most of the demand is Western. Most of the consumers are American. And when you come down to things like American pedo-criminality on the Internet, it's staggering that half of those doing these awful things are women. And the pictures and the acts are getting more graphic, more violent, and on ever younger victims every single year. And, of course, the tragedy of this is that while other illicit trade, like drugs and arms, are non-renewable, they're used once and gone, humans are recyclable. And many people in our world today face a lifetime in trafficking and abuse and evil. Let me finish quickly and then throw it open to you. But one last point. So many things I've missed out. I've missed out all the stuff about the environment and so on. But let me just mention one last point that comes very close to home with Socrates and its discussions. The three outcomes that people see and the worldviews usually associated with each of the three. When you look at the full scale of the challenge of globalization, and in one evening I've just touched on it briefly, when you look at the full scale, clearly very profound questions are being raised. And you can see that there are only so many answers in the room and only so many suggestions as to the outcomes, as to the way forward. The first great outcome recommended is, put simply, press on regardless. Press on regardless. And this is the position, basically, of those who are secular. The argument is that the crises are all exaggerated, and they always have been. Take Thomas Malthus with population. Science and technology has always and will always come through with an answer. And the final throw of the dice is we can create what's called a post-human future. Largely with robots and mainly centering on the human mind rather than the human body. And as I say, there's lots written about that and lots designed about that, but that's broadly the position of those who are secularist. The second position would be those who would say we've got to radically stop and look elsewhere principally to the Eastern religions or the Native American religions. And obviously it's people who are from those who are in the lead of supporting this. And you could think, say, since 1978 of the Gaia movement. You may know that Lovelock, who wrote the book called Gaia, is a scientist, and his original title for the book was a very heavy scientific answer. I can't even remember. 
with words like cyber, cyber biogenetics and all sorts of things in it. And his neighbor, happened to read the book for him in draft form, was William Golding, the novelist. And Golding said to him, you will never sell a book with a title like that. He said, why don't you give it the title of the Greek name for the goddess Earth, Gaia? And the book, of course, sold millions and launched what's known as the Gaia movement. In other words, the argument is, it is Judaism and the Christian faith and secularism as their offspring, which have led this world of knowledge and power and oppression of human beings and the environment, we've got to turn back towards views of wisdom and equilibrium and balance and so on. And you can see that powerfully argued in many parts of the world, which means essentially a counter-modernizing movement. The third position is to say, we have gone wrong, let's go back to where we've gone wrong, but not throw the baby out with the bathwater. And that's broadly the position of the Jews and the Christians. In other words, there is no question that the modern world came out of Judaism and the Christian faith, what Benjamin Disraeli called Judaism for the multitudes. But somewhere in the 17th, 18th century, things went wrong. And instead of Sir Isaac Newton's, the world is God's handiwork, and we treat it as stewards of God's handiwork, even as we explore it through science and technology. Francis Bacon's knowledge is power became the maxim, and there's no question that the West has raped the world and been disastrous for the people of the earth and the questions for the environment, for the poor, and for the generations unborn are very, very profound. But the third position, which should certainly be mine, would be, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Go back to where these things went wrong. For instance, if you read the book of Genesis, the covenant with Noah specifies not only with you and your family and so on, but every living human species, all the animals. Clearly, we have not fulfilled that as trustees and stewards. But inevitably, these are the decisions we're going to have to make And they will be made very clearly out of the worldviews we take. And I just finish with this one thought. Many of the deepest discussions of globalization come back to a very simple idea, the crisis of trust. They point out trust isn't just a philosophical problem, certain crazy postmodern thinkers. It's not just an ethical problem, say, Enron. It's not a political problem. After Watergate, we can't trust our leaders. Far more profound than that. Globalization is creating a world of such movement and precariousness and anxiety that never have human beings had less of a deep sense of trust in themselves, in their institutions, in their future, and therefore in their agency and their ability to act constructively in the world. I'll just say very simply, as a person of faith and a follower of Jesus, the deeper I go in this, I'm struck by one very simple thing. There is only one force, power, greater than globalization. And that's God. And if you read someone like the prophet Isaiah, long, long ago, but in a day of huge superpowers, Syria, Babylon, Egypt, People in his time were panicking all around them, 
trying to cobble together defensive alliances to give them some security, however false. He kept saying again and again, God is greater than all, so God can be trusted in all situations. So have faith in God and have no fear. Picked up by Jesus, picked up most recently by the last pope, have no fear. But the point is, if you think about it, Many people don't even like to think about globalization. It's too big and too challenging. We're in a world of huge forces. We're in a world of huge fears. Terrorism, bird flu, you name it. What's tomorrow? In a world like this, to have trust and know that you have a confidence in the future and in your own action in the world, however small you may be and however much you're up against the odds, you've got to have a pivot, a foundation, a fulcrum that is bigger than the biggest thing you face. And in a world of fears, I, as a follower of Jesus, almost thank God daily that God is greater than the greatest challenges of globalization. And I try and live my personal life intellectually, practically, or whatever. God is greater than all. God is to be trusted in all situations. So whatever one faces, have no fear. Have faith in God. Over to you for our discussion. Uh, Mr. Guinness, if uh, globalization is a, an issue of communication, um, many believe that uh, one of the concerns about communication is that today uh, a vast majority of communication comes through a similar filter, a similar worldview, a secular worldview. Would it have an impact on communication if we were, on uh, globalization, if we were to change uh, some of the filters or add additional filters, a, 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 uh, a Christian worldview to the communication that we're receiving, would that have an impact on this, the pace or the impact of globalization that we see? In my experience, and I used to be a journalist for a while, in my experience, those who are in the highest leadership and those who are in journalism, and I mean political leadership, are very aware there isn't just one filter. I've been with presidents lamenting the fact that there's only one occasion in the State of the Union when they can speak unfiltered to the American people. If you just take the technological diversity, I'm taking the last few years the blog and the blogosphere. I mean, the networks, the channels, there isn't one filter. You have an extraordinary variety today. You know, it's not a domination of one. And if you look globally, you can see the challenge there. Look at the Chinese trying to clamp down on there. They will not hold the Internet from being subversive, however much Google and some of the others try to help them a little bit. Now, I personally wouldn't fear that. We're almost facing a babel of communication. The question is, how do you trust communication? And people take things off the blog as gospel. And the old-fashioned, say, standards of journalism where you believed in truth with almost a fanatical zeal, they're slipping out more and more. I, I would be more concerned by the opposite. The, uh, the numbers you gave regarding uh, the human trafficking were pretty shocking. And it just seems to me that 
it, and maybe I'm wrong, that there isn't that much media coverage of that, of that particular issue, or really maybe it's a number of, number of issues that fall under one uh, broader umbrella. But I'm just wondering, do you agree that that's true, that it's not being covered adequately by the media? Uh, if so, why? Uh, and are there any newspapers or media outlets that you think are giving that whole issue uh, good coverage? I think it is becoming a proper issue, and some of the networks and so on have done a good job. But remember, what I'm talking about only came up. I mean, people date it to the 1990s. The double event of the rise, the creation of the Internet, and the collapse of the Berlin Wall, which brings down all walls except basically the Chinese one and so on. But you can see now incredible freedom of mobility and the dark side of pornography and pedocriminality and so on. So much of this is dated since the 1990s. And many people on the media have just done it in a piecemeal fashion. So you've got NBC, you know, Dateline covering IJM in a very good way. Others have been a little more sensational the way they've covered it. But what's lacking, and I think, Jim, this is your sort of world, documentary makers can put something like this in historical perspective. There are, next year, 2007 will be the 200th anniversary of Wilberforce's abolition of the slave trade, not slavery, the trade. And there'll be a huge amount, including a wonderful book by Eric next year, which we'll all be buying in a year's time. Anyway, there's going to be a huge amount of talk, but the trouble is a lot of it doesn't have the sort of global and historical perspective so that can, people can see what it is we're really facing. There are, there are good things. Hello. Um, in, in your lecture, you uh, gave a pretty bleak outlook of globalization. Um, my question is, are there any advantages to globalization? And if so, is it possible that those advantages could possibly delay the disadvantages no. of yeah, I, globalization? I, let, let me be clear. I'm not a pessimist, and I'm not the slightest bit bleak. What I tried to say to you is that most people only read Tom Friedman and say, gee whiz. And there's another side. And I was trying to put the part that many people miss. I'm not the slightest bit pessimistic or bleak. Now, of course, if you take the heart of it, we can conduct our human affairs anywhere in the world, regardless of place, time, and government. Depends what you want to put in the communication. You can have your local horticultural club. You can be a worldwide member of a chess club. You, there's a million benign things you can do. You can do, look at, say, what Rick Warren has done, uh, harnessing the power of the faith community to tackle things like AIDS and so on. So that there are all sorts of things that can be done on the other side. Of course, the illicit traders and the terrorists want to use it for the dark side. So the communication itself is that its heart can be used in all sorts of ways. We've got to make sure that we use it responsibly and humanly and have the guts to think about it. Now, one of the problems of globalization is what's called the TINA principle, T-I-N-A, which means there is no alternative. And Jacques Ellul warned about this a long time ago. If a thing can be done, it will be done. And if I don't do it, someone else will do it. Say, stem cell cloning, you know, they tried to do it in Korea and they had fraudulence, but someone will do it. If a thing can be done, it will be done. Now, 
the challenge is to think so humanly and ethically and responsibly that while we know certain things can be done, there are things we will not do because they're not right, not human, not wise, whatever it is. Now, you could spend the whole evening, you know, along the other side looking at the benign, wonderful views of what's happened through globalization. All of that is equally true. So please don't go away. I tried to say I'm looking at the part that most people miss. Thank you. Okay, first, I really enjoyed your talk. I thought it was excellent. My question is, you spent a lot of time discussing the problems of globalization. What are some of the simple, maybe not so simple, protocols that can be instituted that would help to alleviate some of these problems? Um, if you look at the global problems, there are global problems that are new, like, say, climate, deforestation. You know, they weren't there 100 years ago. So there's a whole batch of problems that are new. Then there's a whole batch of problems which are age-old but now inflated globally, say poverty, uh, crime, conflict, disease. All of those are now on a global scale. Then there's a whole third set of problems, and I you know, didn't have time for any of this, what you might call global rules and negotiations. Let me just take one which is very interesting to me. Globalization is creating a new global public square. Never been a global public square. The best was philosophers talking in a Paris salon, or more recently, the people at Davos getting together. That was about all that the global public square was. The best thinkers in the world talking about the affairs of the world. But now, through the internet and other things, we've got a genuine global public square. And nobody's thought through how you respond to it. So, I mean, Ignore the things in the last few weeks. Take, say, a few years ago, Jerry Falwell made some rude remarks about Muhammad in Lynchburg. Three weeks later, there were riots in Lahore. I'm sure he didn't think that what he said in Lynchburg, Virginia, was going to set off a riot in Lahore, let alone the editors in Copenhagen thinking what they'd set off worldwide. What you're seeing is that with globalization, like sound carrying across the water, you've got a global public square, so almost, this is exaggerated, everybody hears everybody. So we need ways of talking. Now, there are three simple positions put forward, and sadly there's no statesman putting these out at Davos or wherever. One position is one that's called progressive universalism. Those who believe their way is the only way, the one way for everybody, coerce everybody. And that would include not only communists, obviously, and Muslims, obviously. It would also include certain feminists and certain Democrats who'd like to export democracy at the point of a gun. That view would only lead to conflict. The world is so diverse. The other extreme is what is called radical relativism. Now, as all these cultures, let them all do their thing, as the teenagers say, whatever. You know, the American Anthropological Association in 1948 refused to sign the UN Declaration of Universal Human Rights. Why? They weren't universal with all the cultural anthropological differences. Now, the problem of the second view, if the first leads to conflict, the second leads to complacency. That's their way. Who am I to say? That's their whatever. We will let awful evils happen and never do anything. 
whether it's female castration or slavery or whatever it is, we cannot just say that's their culture, let them have the freedom to do their thing. The third position, interestingly to Socrates, is called an examined pluralism. On the basis of freedom of conscience, everyone is free to do what they believe is right, but it should be an examined freedom of conscience, and then we need to negotiate the diversity with the liberty. So, for example, if a Christian disagrees with an atheist or a Muslim with a Jew or a Jew with a Scientologist or whatever, there are certain things that are obvious in a pluralistic world that wants to keep both liberty and diversity. You will want to not coerce but persuade. And you will want to do it peacefully with respect, etc. So there are certain ways that have to be worked out. At the moment, nobody is addressing the huge dimensions of this one problem. And then there are 30 other problems. So I couldn't possibly begin to tackle them in one evening. But these are the sorts of areas. A great question you asked. We all ought to think of how this touches our world and be not only responsible as far as we're able, creative in thinking through solutions of globalization's challenges as it touches our particular world. Some of you in law, some of you in finance, some of you in the media, whatever it is. Hi, Oz. Thank you. Uh, at the beginning of your talk, you mentioned one of the great questions is how will the Muslim world modernize or what will that look like? Or will or it can modernize they? peacefully? Right. Can they do it peacefully? And I was in London when the um, cartoon debacle broke out. And uh, I'm just curious what your perspective is on um, whether or not you think this really shook Europe up and in the sense that they sort of woke well, up Europe. And did Europe really wake up to the issue of what's happening? I'm seeing, um, I guess my question is to what should the Christian response be to what happened with the riots and I guess I just want your perspective on, on sort of what happened there. I think Europe was woken up earlier by the French riots and by the London bombings. And, of course, this has just accentuated it. Actually, it's America that could be shaken up this time because what you see in the wings is essentially the death of the West. The balancing powers in the rest of the world now are really becoming... Very powerful. When I was in China, one of the Chinese scholars said to me, who's the winner in Iraq? I sort of looked at him, what was he getting at? And he said, well, you know, we Chinese are. The United States is bogged down in Iraq, and we're developing all our influence in Africa, and so on, and so on, and so on. So there are far wider things than that. Now, the problem in Europe is quite simple. Europe has never had a good view of religion and public life, like the United States. Europe has never had a myth of assimilation. So Europe, whether it's England in a mild form, France in a stronger form, are suffering because they're suddenly thrown into the challenge of these modern issues like diversity, and they've never answered them. And the old European answers are all in the mixing pot. The real tragedy is, though, that America, which until recently was the world's best answer, what James Madison called the true remedy to some of these things, in the last 50 years with the cultural warring and so on, America is not demonstrating the answer that she once had. And so much of the world is not appreciated. But I think whether it's the American discussion of immigration and assimilation, immense amount of lessons for the world there. Or it's the American story of religious liberty and public life and disestablishment and so on. There's an immense amount for the world to learn there. Now, I personally think, you ask my view, 
we should not cave in. In other words, the things like freedom of speech we do value. And the Muslims have no right to impose their views on us. Now, I speak now as a Christian. One of the great differences between Islam and the Christian faith is exactly at this point of blasphemy and insults. Jesus was predicted to be insulted and despised and tortured and killed and utterly shamed and humiliated. And it was only through that that he would go on to the victory. And, of course, the cross is exactly that. And we're the one faith in the world that has a tortured criminal spread-eagled naked as our central symbol. So insults of that sort are no surprise to the Christian. They're actually part and parcel of it. Whereas to the Muslim, not only God, but Muhammad, the prophet, is to be so honored that insults to him are blasphemy. Well, I think they've got a real problem there, as well as with free speech. I'm afraid this will have to be the last question. I'll be around afterwards. <laughs> but, but Oz won't leave, so. <laughs> Hello, Oz. Um, a question about your thinking of um, the speed at which globalization is occurring. It's like a tsunami effect. And the need for more reflective thinking on the part of ourselves individually and also our leaders and just those globally. How? Could you just address how you think the solutions for more reflective thinking in order to respond to the very nature of globalization and the speed at which information is coming to us would be? Again, all these terrific questions open up all sorts of questions. For, for example, the one I won't tackle is, how do we each have a diet of information ourselves so that we're not overwhelmed? And that's, you know, one huge issue in itself. But there's a deeper one, I think. All of us need a small group that gives us the place for the time out. And I think while there are millions, literally, of small groups, fellowship groups, accountability groups, you name it, groups in this country, many of them lack this dimension. They don't think. In other words, you take... Christian small groups, often they have good fellowship or they pray or they study the Bible or whatever, all of which is essential and wonderful. But they don't tackle modern issues. Now, Socrates does a terrific job with all the people you bring in over the course of the years, but we can't just do it with several hundred. We each have to be part of an ongoing small group of people like iron sharpening iron, really keeping us up to date with things that are significant, with challenges that we need to think of and so on. So for me, that's it. And I'm grateful for the friends I have, not only in Washington, other parts of the country too. Anytime, I'm, I'm, I can never be without Eric without being stimulated, challenged in some way. I mean, truly. I mean, he's one of the friends I covet and prize because he's a thinking person. He's a Socrates as one person. And I, I, that's the sort of thing we all need. So I, I would urge everyone. You know, it isn't just reading the right newspapers, the right magazines. You need to be part of an ongoing, stimulating small group that helps you think of all these things as it touches your world. So tonight was very, very general, and I hope just opened a door or a window or two to other things. But you could lead down to all sorts of specific things. So this is actually only one talk in a series of four that I have.